Hi Gains Gurus and welcome to TMGP, the Muscle Growth Podcast, Episode 3. I am your host, Roscoe, and today we are welcoming Morgan Agron onto the show. Morgan is an online fitness coach who is helping men and women between the ages of 30 to 50 who work a desk job take ownership of their health and fitness goals. She is a college rugby player and an avid gym goer who has managed to amass an astonishing 30 pounds of muscle in four years while also losing fat and getting stronger. She can deadlift 180 kilograms and knows how to tackle, so she is not someone that you want to mess with. Given that brief glimpse into Morgan's background, let's jump right into the QA style show. Please note that this recording has been sped up to 110% speed to ensure that as little content is cut and to keep a faster pace. Hi Morgan. Hey, how are you? Well, thanks in yourself. Welcome to the Muscle Growth Podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, only a pleasure. Only a pleasure. Would you like to give us a little introduction into yourself? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Morgan. I run an online coaching business to help people lose fat and build muscle. Um, I work with a variety of different clients and with people with different goals um, from your average American who works a typical desk job, has a sedentary lifestyle and wants to lose some body fat and possibly even reverse type 2 diabetes to some younger people who are looking to build some muscle and sort of get rid of that skinny fat type of look. Additionally, I train myself for hypertrophy strength, pretty much a good mix of both while playing competitive rugby in college. Okay, is that in New York? Yes. Okay. Are you from from New York originally? Uh, no, actually. So this is actually a little bit of how I got into lifting and all. Um, I'm originally from California, so Los Angeles, okay. uh, Hollywood, very much from that area. I grew up playing ice hockey, um, and living in California, there wasn't a whole lot of ice hockey there. So when I first came out to um, college recruitment camps, because I had wanted to play college college hockey, um, everybody had told me that I needed to get stronger. Um, given that there was no um, sport-specific training for hockey in California, I took matters into my own hands and started reading about exercise science and the things that I needed to do to get stronger. Um, my very first program, I wrote myself, I was 16 years old. And, um, you know, there was definitely a lot of room for improvement looking back at it. But um, I will say that it is um, prob was probably better than a lot of just standard programs you'd get off the internet. I had read strength and conditioning-based books, um, books by... Um, Mike Boyle, I'd read Triphasic Training. I'd read a bunch of those to create a bunch of ideas for myself. My very first program was just all about sort of getting strong on the compounds, which I think was a really good use of my time as a beginner. Um, but a lot of exercises that today I would no longer program for myself because um, they may not be the best for hypertrophy. However, they were great in getting me started lifting and teaching me proper fundamentals. Um, so from there... That's how I got into strength and conditioning. Um, after a couple of years of that, I realized my muscles were growing and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Um, it made me feel a little more confident on the ice. I'm only five foot two, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty short. Um, so some of those bigger girls coming at me was something that used to scare me, but as I built more muscle, it didn't bother me as much. Um, so I'd get more confident on the ice. Uh, eventually I got strong enough, fast enough, good enough that I was offered a spot at a preparatory school um, on the East Coast. So I played hockey at a preparatory school in New Hampshire, which is pretty close to New York for those of you that aren't really familiar with uh, United States geography. Um, so I did that and I played a year of college hockey uh, that didn't end up working out for me because there was just a lot of 
overload with COVID. Um, a lot of people with an extra year because sports shut down and whatnot. So after the first year, that didn't really work out for me. I transferred to a different school, um, picked up rugby, and now that's what we're doing. Wow, that's an awesome intro. Thank you so much. You mentioned uh, your your compound lifts that you started off training uh, when you first started, and I'm sure you, I saw you still do lots of compound lifts. What are your your favorite compounds to do, and what are your SPD numbers? Oh, okay, so yes, my favorite compounds are definitely um, deadlift, bench. I like the front squat a lot. I'm not doing it currently, but I do like it a lot. Um, my SPD numbers, so I bench 185 pounds. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that is in kilos. Or I think around 82. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. I squat 280. Um, it's a little lacking um, compared to everything else. That's not really sure what that is as well. I think it's maybe around 130 kilos, um, just roughly. And I deadlift 405 pounds. And I think that's around 180 kilos. 80 kilograms. So yeah, more or less. Wow. So you're a deadlift specialist, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say probably a deadlift specialist. Um, I maxed out a few days ago actually had a few extra calories from american thanksgiving and decided to send it um that was the first time i'd pulled 405 but it felt like i could have done maybe 20 25 more so luckily i didn't stop at that point um but i do look forward to maybe tapering down to a max in around june-ish okay that's exciting well best of luck for for getting up today those are really big deadlift numbers yeah um dude you at the gym or do you go to a private facility? Um, I go to the college gym when I'm here at school. It's actually very nice for a college gym. Lots of, there's a couple squat racks, a couple deadlift platforms. Um, there's a reverse V squat, which um, I think most college gyms don't have any sort of machine squat type things. This is a hammer strength chest supported row. Um, you know, I'd love if it had a couple more things, but it, it gets the job done probably a lot better than most college gyms. Um, and then when I'm at home, I do go to a nicer private gym with uh, a little more fancy equipment. That's nice. It's really cool that the college uh, provides you with with good facilities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, previous colleges and other colleges I've seen don't have quite as much like machine equipment. So it's very nice to be able to have a healthy mix of barbell and machine stuff. And especially since um, recently the data has shown that there's not that much uh, functional difference um, or difference in hypertrophy between machine and free weight uh, movements i saw that that's quite new data that yeah. uh, people used to believe that barbells and free weights were much superior to um the machines but that's been disproven now which is quite quite interesting yeah i mean i actually used to believe that too i think my first pro the first program i wrote myself i only used barbells and dumbbells um i was doing like a front squat some sort of power clean some sort of barbell bent over row barbell overhead press. I, I think there was one of the days in my program where I did six different barbell exercises with the same barbell. Oh, wow. Well, at least then you weren't hogging all the equipment or you yeah, hogging fair. one thing, I guess. Yep. Yeah. It was just hogging one thing. Um, lots of supersets, lots of trisets in typical like strength and conditioning fashion, which I think is, you know, not necessarily the worst thing. But if you're doing that in a public gym, sometimes people are going to get a little upset. Um, having If you're using more than one piece of equipment, if I was, you know, barbell squatting, yeah. barbell benching, you know, but definitely, I definitely did think that the barbell was the only way to build muscle and that machines just weren't it. Recently, I've changed my opinions about that a lot in the last couple of years. I think that there's really just good equipment for different goals. Um, like some muscle groups, I will definitely prefer machines a lot more. And other muscle groups, I think, can't necessarily be it fully without some sort of compound movement. No, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I, I also... Um 
used to think that free weight was the only way to go. And I think I was similar to you and I had a barbell slash dumbbell for pretty much everything. And I do still believe that you can get the basics done with literally just that. If you're stuck uh, in a pinch at a home gym, for example, mm -hmm. you can still put on some really good size as long as the weight gets heavy enough. Um, I was wondering, I saw that you specialize in, in um, male and female coaching between the age of 30 and 50, mostly people that are doing desk jobs. What made you choose that? Uh, that niche, I guess. So there's a few things really. Um, with my college major, I work with sort of athletes and strength and conditioning. And something I've discovered is I really do not enjoy working with athletes. Um, really? Not at all. I do not. Why, why is that? Athletes, because I don't enjoy the sport specific type of training. I don't enjoy. Okay. I just a lot of what I see with athletes is they'll come in. Um, the focus is sort of lackluster. Um, of, of course, this isn't all athletes. I'm at a Division three school, not a Division one. My experience could be different. Um, but, you know, things are a little bit lackluster. People aren't really logging their weights in their sheet. I don't know what weight to use. I don't know what to do. And um, I just don't love the whole structure, at least for myself, because this isn't how I like to train. I don't like the structure of doing like a compound and then a plyometric and then doing a third superset. I just find that a little bit boring because, um, at least for me, I'm not going to build a ton of muscle doing that. So I don't enjoy helping others with that, I guess. Um, so I noticed that that age group is definitely the ones that are a little bit past the athletic age. Um, and additionally, you know, if you're running a coaching business, you also have to be aware that you have to make ends meet somewhere. And ultimately, not a lot of 20 to 29 year olds have the money for private coaching. <laughs> Okay, no, that makes perfect sense. There's a lot of logic that went into into that decision. I'm yeah. very impressed, actually, that you you thought really hard and uh, about all of that. Um, and you know, I think um, another aspect of my client base is that I relate to the desk job thing a lot. Um, when I was growing up, I was taking like a lot of hard classes. My school district had really encouraged people to take more advanced classes, so I was actually having to spend a lot of my day sitting and doing homework and research and things like that. So I think I, I definitely resonate with having to sit for so long and then not really wanting to be active afterward, not knowing how to get your activity in during the day and just being sort of strapped to your desk all day long. No, I totally feel you there. I'm stuck at a, well, not stuck. I'm fortunate enough to be at a nine to five at a desk. Um, yeah. But I would, I'm really gunning for a standing desk or at least one that has the option of moving up and down. Um, because I get pretty stuff sitting around all day. I do try and get up as much as possible, but I do understand. And, and that's really cool that you've seen that as something that you, uh, as some way that you can help people with that specific problem. Yeah. Um, in terms of the fundamentals of hypertrophy, what is your definition of it? And how would you say that that hypertrophy training differs from maybe rugby or hockey training? So my definition of hypertrophy is just the probably the most simple as possible which would be muscle growth um there's lots more nuance to it but when i think about it i just think of how am i going to build muscle and with that definition there's a lot of ways to skin the cat there's you know if you take an untrained person and they have okay form and progressive overload over time they're going to build muscle but maybe if they train in this different way they will build more muscle or build muscle faster and that's sort of what i'm looking for at this point um strict hypertrophy training i'd say would be a lot a little more nuanced and controlled than strength and conditioning um what i would look for in hypertrophy training would be rep quality tempo form um proper good exercise selection for the goals 
and just execution, rest time, everything sort of being on point. Whereas when you're training for a sport or something like that, there's a little bit less, there's a lot more that you can get away with. Um, Sport-specific training tends to favor a lot of compound exercises, which I still think are fantastic for hypertrophy. But, you know, um, if I'm like bench pressing, I want to bench a little more explosively to bench for rugby. Whereas for hypertrophy, I'd want to be a little more controlled. The way that I manage this in my own training is that um, I will typically program a top set and a back down, at least for any compounds that I see helping myself with rugby. So that top set is going to be a little bit more explosive, a little bit more like, hey, someone's coming at me, I'm going to push them off. That's a little bit more the thought process while still, you know, maintaining proper form, keeping the elbows tucked, touching the bar to the chest, not bucking my hips off, just all the standardized things. But tempo may be a little bit more or I guess less structured and a little bit more explosive. But the back down set is going to be, you know, strict hypertrophy focused, just controlling the weight, quick pause at the bottom, driving up, that kind of thing. I think you made an excellent distinction between the two different types of uh, hypertrophy training, one more specific for sport and one more specific for purely muscle growth, which is the name of the podcast. So that was really cool that you brought that in there. Um, Can you explain the science or the aspects behind and the mechanisms behind muscles getting bigger? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, um, there's a lot of nuance to it. But at the basic level, you go to the gym and you're going to break down your muscles. And then as you recover and fuel your body properly and sleep, most importantly sleep, your muscles are going to rebuild themselves back bigger so that they can withstand more next week. Now, what does that mean by more? I mean more mechanical tension. There's lots of ways you can drive mechanical tension, be it free weight machines, um, any other type of implementation really. But when we're looking for more tension, we're looking for progressive overload, which would be adding a little bit of weight, adding some reps to the movement or adding sets, um, or even maybe doing the same weight and reps with just better form, better tempo, better intention. Um, And those are really the ways that we can drive hypertrophy and in the gym and outside. Brilliant. Thank you. What what role does nutrition play in that hypertrophy process? I think it plays a really big role, but I also think that it's dependent on the person. So we know that there are some people that have really good genetics that are going to be able to essentially go to the gym, train however they want, um, progressive overload a little bit, and then eat whatever they want and are going to grow muscle. But I think for the rest of us, there has to be a little bit more attention to nutrition And as you get more advanced, there's going to be some of those more micro-optimizations that you're going to need to make to continue to grow muscle past, I guess, your newbie gains period. No, absolutely. Um, I saw that you have one of the most epic um, threads on Twitter with over 21,000 views, which is your kind of explanation on training principles and how you gained, I think it was a ridiculous 30 pounds of muscle. Is that that correct? Yeah, so... Over, over around four years, yep. Um, now, here's the, so a few important details with that. Um, I gained 30 pounds of muscle, but not 30 pounds of weight necessarily. My body weight only gained around 10 pounds, but I went from around like 27-ish percent body fat to around 21, 20% body fat in that four-year process. So it's not like I put on 30 pounds to what I already had. A lot of that was... Um, in the terms of a body recomp, but by DEXA, I had gained 30 pounds in that year of muscle mass while also, you know, losing fat mass and gaining mass at the same time. If that's that, incredible. Well, um, so the four years that I had done that, that was as I was starting to get into training a little bit. So I did have the advantage of um, being a newbie. I think that I've read a few studies that have said newbies can gain 
around 10 pounds of muscle in their first year or two of training, um, especially if things are done right. The way that I was able to accomplish this is that ultimately I was very consistent. Um, a lot of people, what will happen is they will train pretty hard for six months or even a year. And then after that, they will um, pay a little less attention to it. And then I find that it's a lot harder for people to make that type of progress continuing after the first couple of years once they fall off. So the biggest thing in that thread, I think, was my consistency and my tracking of the non-negotiables. So I was the biggest things was I was showing up to the gym on average three to four times a week those entire four years. And I was also logging every workout in either a journal, a Google spreadsheet. But I always went into every workout knowing what I did last week and what my goals were to do this week so that I'd be able to progressive overload properly. No, and that, I think you obviously showed that that's what you need to do. You need to be consistent. You need to have a plan. That was your first um, comment on the thread is that you have to have a structured plan. You can't just be guessing every single time. And I think a lot of people go and they kind of see, okay, what's open? What do I feel like doing today? Oh, chest. Okay, what do I feel do, like doing the next day? Oh, chest. And then they do chest four times a week and then it's leg day. But then if it's a bit cold or they're not feeling like doing legs, so then the next day they go back and they, they do chest again. Or, or that's obviously an example that hopefully most people don't do. But it's a bit of a, a meme at the moment that everyone just wants to train, train chest because it feels good, it looks good. And um, yeah, it's 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 quite a, I found chest is an easy one to to train because there's so many different ways to to train it. And yeah, it's really awesome to, to get the pump in the, in the chest, I guess. And yeah. you mentioned that you don't know ego lifting, um, technique is important those kind of things let's just go through that thread because it's such an awesome yeah. thread you really like nailed it um yeah so just hop in if you want to add anything uh so you mentioned about increasing uh progressive overload adding reps or improving your form is also a way to uh to progressively overload it doesn't necessarily have to be weight or and you can also change the tempo just keeping the good form otherwise you're cheating yourself uh, focus mostly on your compound exercise. You list some exercises. I do basically all of these in my own programming. Uh, the bench press, the dips, the variations, uh, squats and variations, deadlift, RDL, stiff leg deadlift. I recently started incorporating the stiff, stiff leg deadlift for the first time. Also a deficit, I think it adds to the stretch. Um, mm -hmm. Pull-ups and pull, pull downs, awesome as well. Um, row and chest supported rows and then shoulder press. I think you pretty much nail most of the major muscle groups groups there um maybe something for calves as well got it has yeah. calves, but i guess that wouldn't be compound as much it'd probably be more maybe more specific there training with intensity obviously people yeah. miss that one a lot i think oh, yeah um yeah I, I i i am bad with that because i think i've wasted a lot of years in the gym by going i never trained what i would say easy and mm -hmm. i always thought i was training intensity but I never used to go to failure ever because I thought that that would lead to injury and I was scared to hurt myself. And I think I lost out on a lot of gains because I read the literature and it said you can go a few um, reps shy, like like you mentioned, or to, to RIR, reps in yeah. reserve. Um, but I realized that my so-called 0-2 reps in reserve was actually maybe not to 20. Um, literally, like if someone had a gun to my head, I could probably... Have gone quite a lot more on a lot of on a lot of those. Um, so we got the nice creatures here. I see. Um, I see you mentioned about junk volume where you're just doing way too much. I think I also did that. Um, 
and then you you give an example of a much better workout where it's a lot less fewer exercise how many exercises do you have in your current training program per day would you say right now it's about six um six maybe seven uh recently what i've been doing is something really different i'm doing an anterior posterior split um this is not something i've seen a lot what i like to think of it is is push pull legs but dividing the leg day across two different days um i have seen a lot of research that you know, you don't necessarily have to hit every body part two times a week to grow. I've seen some research where one time a week is even better. However, I do currently like training things twice a week. Um, as I'm getting stronger, I'm starting to realize that I am going to need to pull back a little bit on some body parts. Uh, it was a little eye-opening, actually, to deadlift 405 because, you know, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm like, well, awesome. I'm deadlifting 405. I'm not squatting 315 yet. Maybe I need to pull back my deadlift a little bit um, just for the sake of balance so that I don't get hurt. Um, I actually was doing, I was training on Tuesday night and I felt a little something in my low back. Everything's fine. Um, it's not anything serious, but I was like, well, you know what? I'm able to RDL 315 for reps and maybe it's time to think about only hip hinging once a week so that, that has a longer time to recover. So that is, you know, I think as you get more advanced, there's a little bit more space for nuance and maybe some movement patterns are a little bit better pulled back on and not done quite as often. However, um, I think most beginners should really be hitting things twice a week for at least at the very best, you know, movement patterns, improving form, improving technique, and just improving confidence with the movements. So the anterior posterior split that I've had has pretty much allowed me to hit every muscle group twice a week while playing rugby and managing my fatigue a little bit. So that's what it is it's around like probably that has made me able to pretty much narrow my exercises down to six or seven different things per session. That sounds like a good amount of volume to me. How many sets per exercise are you doing? Between two and three. Um, and that's working sets excluding Yeah, that's working sets. Um, excludes okay. like warmups. So my working sets are um, zero to two reps in reverse. Um, I do implement training to failure. Um, actually a little bit more often, especially on certain movements. Anything that's machine-based, I think I most anything that's machine-based in upper body, I'm going to go to failure because I think that's just really the best way to know. Um, anything that's free weight, sometimes I'll, I'll implement some weeks that will be to failure just to make sure that I'm really being accurate with knowing when I'm stopping. Um, and, you know, I do try and really make those sets as in, intense as possible. I do more sets for things like upper back, um, hamstrings, uh, leg curls, upper back, those will get usually three sets. Um, and then mostly everything else is going to get probably two per, okay. per set. That makes a lot of sense. And it's good that you test what your failure is so that you don't have to be guessing like, like I used yeah. to. Um, yeah. and then, but also another yeah. point is if you're going to test that failure and it's a free weight exercise, you should have a spotter or, or safety pins or, or something yeah. to Some, something to, to fail with. Yes. Yes, exactly. Or learn how to fail correctly. That's also important. Yes. And then the last part of the thread is things to do outside of the gym that I think people often get wrong. They go, they have amazing gym sessions, but then they don't get their one gram of protein uh, per pound of body weight, at least. They don't sleep seven to nine hours per night. They don't hydrate. They don't get their steps in and they eat junk food. And you summarize that very well in the end of your thread there. So that was an awesome thread. And I see people absolutely loved it so well done well done for that Thank um, you. pleasure what uh with some advanced training techniques you mentioned that after the newbie gains uh 
you can start looking at more specific things. What would be some advanced training techniques that can help you break through a plateau? Some of, there's there's a lot of different things. Um, I actually wanted to talk. I saw your post about length and partials earlier, so I wanted to actually talk about that. I think those are becoming a little bit more popular with um, Sam Sulik and his popularity. So yes, and uh, yeah, what were you saying? Doctor Milo Wolf, yeah, Doctor Milo Wolf. We just released his podcast today, so he's oh, actually okay. the guy who who did the study on length and partials. He did the meta-analysis. That was his doctorate uh, dissertation. So that was really interesting to hear him talk about length and partials on the previous episode to this. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to be checking that out. So I think a length and partial is a great way to break a plateau with um, either strengths or muscle groups um, when you're building strength, but particularly with muscle groups. But here's the way that I see it. So let's say the lap pull down. I think we've all seen the Sam Sulik clip of his um, neutral grip lap pull downs with the length and partials. Um, the way that he does that is very much biasing his lats. Um, and I think that in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to do those partials because he's primarily training his lats with that movement. However, when a lot of people are doing a lap pull down, or at least when I do my lap pull downs, I like to try and use my whole back where um, you know I'm locking the arms out, bringing them down, retracting the scapula. So I'm using a bit of the traps, rhomboids, teres, and the lats in order to do my lat pulldowns. And where I think about the difference between doing regular reps that are not length and partials and then length and partials, for me at least, an entire set of length and partials would hit the lats a lot more than everything else in my in my back. And with my training style and trying to be pretty efficient with my volume, I don't know that it would make sense to only do an exercise to mostly hit the lats when I could just add some length and partials after failure because my lats are able to handle that when the rest of my muscles give out. So I do prefer to do full range of motion regular reps and then add the partials on the back end of it rather than just trying to do a set of only length and partials. And another point to that that I kind of see is that length and partials are great. However, what happens if you're lifting a weight that is going to force you into end ranges of motion that you've never trained and have never handled before? So I do like the idea of making sure that this is a weight that I can handle through a full range of motion in case I accidentally slip into more of an end range than the length and partials that I'm training. That makes perfect sense. And uh, did you watch the Jeff Nippert video uh, about that where he mentions exactly what you do, where he still recommends a full range of motion and then at the end as an intensity technique, adding in some length and partials just to get that extra um, stimulus on a specific muscle? Yes. And then even with that, um, with, I did see that video. And then something I've started doing with the length and partials in my training is that I'm logging those two. Um, a few of my favorite follows on Twitter, like um, Jonathan Hebert and um, Dean Tra- D- T Training, they've talked about this as well. And a lot of the reason that they may not always recommend these types of intensity and drop set type, in, sorry, intensity techniques is that they're hard to track. So for me, if I'm going to do things like length and partials, in my little spreadsheet where I track everything, I'm going to highlight that's that row in my set, add plus length and partials. So if I'm doing lat pulldowns um, to failure and then length and partials, what I'll do is like, okay, lat pulldown, log the weight. How many reps did I get regular? I'll do 10. Then maybe let's say I did two high quality length and partials, which I film everything so I know if things are high quality or not. So then that'd be, I'd log that as 10 plus two. So I'm logging that length and partial every week. So it's not any guesswork of, okay, this week I did one partial, this week I did five, this week I did two. So that I'm really trying to overload both. As first priority, I'm trying to overload the regular movement. And then second priority, the adding reps on the length and partials. That's very interesting that you're so meticulous about um, 
about tracking uh, even the lens and partials. That's very interesting. Um, in terms of nutrition and diet, what are the key nutritional elements that support muscle growth? So I think for muscle growth, the key stuff is going to be pretty much protein and eating foods that are going to work for you. Um, I'll see a lot of people that are going to see tweets on protein and then just start slamming whey protein all the time and then their stomach hurts. Well, that's not necessarily the best thing for everybody. Um, or I'll have people who will maybe drink like four or five protein shakes a day to hit their protein goal and then eat everything else. And I've gotten lots of questions about that. And, you know, when that happens at this point, I'm just like, well, actually, maybe we should get our protein through food and then use a shake when needed. Um, and I think that making sure that your nutritional approach is going to work for your body and isn't making you sick is really important. Um, but beyond that, Sorry. the basics of hitting that one gram of protein per pound of body weight, filling the rest with good sources of carbs and fats is really going to um, pretty much be sufficient for most people. No, absolutely. And I think that leads nicely into the next question about macronutrients and micronutrients, because you'd miss a lot of those micronutrients just slamming down four protein of four whey protein shakes and you also mentioned something quite interesting about how the set one something that works for one person might not work for everyone and you need to find something that works for you and what your stomach can handle what your body type can handle and something that you can stick to as well yeah absolutely um in terms of micros i'm a very big fan of eating animal proteins beef um chicken, pork, seafood, anything like that, because it's more bioavailable than plant protein. Um, additionally, with protein supplements, I do tend to prefer whey because that's also going to be a lot more bioavailable than plant protein. So I do suggest being animal-based within your protein. Um, and then for most people, don't ignore vegetables and fruit either. I see a lot of people that are just going to eat chicken and rice and just completely ignore vegetables, ignore fruits, ignore other mm -hmm. things that are... Chicken, broccoli, rice right there. Well, there's the broccoli in there. You got the I broccoli. finished it. I, I ate it first. <laughs> See, a lot of people are going to just skip the broccoli and just chicken and rice all the time. But I think there's some important micros and vegetables and, again, fruit as well that is important to sort of get into your diet. Um, and I do think that actually helps muscle growth. I find that I look, feel, and perform best when I am including the fruits, am including the vegetables, and the animal protein, and obviously getting my macros correct. I totally agree. And I think it's important to have a variety of sources that are you, you're getting your nutrition from. It's interesting that you mentioned about uh, fruits because a lot of people stay away from it because it's got high sugar, but they don't understand the difference between fruit sugar from fruit and artificial sugar. Yeah. And they're completely different. Um, and also what you mentioned about meat and animal-based being better than plant, that's now been shown uh, in most of the literature I've read and significantly better. Um, so if you are vegan or um, vegetarian, you do need to be supplementing. That actually takes us nicely onto the next question. What is, um, or can you provide any insight into your meal timing? And then after that, uh, supplementation strategies. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, my biggest sort of, when I'm structuring my day, I can be a little bit busy. I'd love to have a routine where I'm a lot more consistent and things are at the same time. But I like to sort of work backward from my workout. So if I'm going to work out at 4 o'clock, I'm going to make sure I'm getting in a pre-workout meal at 3, 3.30. Um, that typically is going to include fruit, um, Greek yogurt, and maybe, you know, if I haven't had that many carbs, I may throw some oats in there, um, some honey as well. Sometimes even if I, haven't, if I haven't had enough food to eat, that'll be a slice of bread with maybe a little bit of butter and some honey on there. 
um, just to sort of get some carbohydrates in and as well as a little bit of protein. I'm going for bioavailable protein before my workout. So sources like Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, um, and some leaner meats tend to be my favorite to go for before a workout. So I structure the first meal, um, not the first meal of the day, but I do make sure that I've sort of planned out my pre-workout meal and my post-workout meal. So after my workout, usually I'll drink a protein shake um, and then I'll make some dinner. Just again, something else with protein, carbohydrates, vegetables, and or fruit in making sure that I get that in within about three hours of the gym is the goal. And I will have a protein shake, maybe a protein shake and some yogurt if I know that I don't have time to eat within three hours of that workout being over. Um, and then from there, depending on what time I'm working out, I structure the rest of my meals per day. Um, the way that I approach nutrition, I try and keep things as simple and flexible as possible. So I'll set my protein at 150 grams per day, typically. Um, and if I want to go over that, I will. Otherwise, um, I work backward from that protein goal and then I fill in carbs and fats as needed. One of the biggest tricks and tips that I have for people is that I like to pair a lean meat with a fatty meat in my day. So if I'm going to have, say, like something a little bit leaner like chicken for lunch, I may pick something a little bit fattier for dinner, like maybe a steak, maybe a little bit of pork or something like that. So that I'm either getting so I'm getting either enough calories and so that I'm feeling satiated full and getting enough of that healthy fat level in. That's a really cool tip, and I've I never thought of doing that, but that's that's really useful, and that ensures that you always get your lean meats as well as your your fats. And I think a lot of people mistakenly stay away from fats. Mm -hmm. I think I did that as well. I'm not that fussed about it anymore. But uh, fats are actually quite essential in in your diet, at least some amount of fat. I think if you're just having carbs and protein, and you've taken away an entire macronutrient um, fat element that. Uh, you're going to struggle a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And then you'll also see people go the other direction where they will eat like, you know, ribeye for breakfast, ribeye for lunch, ribeye for dinner. Um, yeah, the carnivore diet. Carnivore diet, or they will um, completely eat lean meats, yeah. um, which, you know, they're, they, I will say carnivore and keto do work for a lot of people. However, you know, I think that it's all about finding that good balance. Yeah. Sorry, that's the power that's just gone gone out my side. Got the torches still. Um, how important is uh, recovery in muscle hypertrophy and what strategies can aid recovery? I think it's very important. So as you mentioned earlier, supplementation is something that can aid recovery as well. But for most people, I think that you should focus on your food, your sleep, and your movement before you focus on anything else. A few of the biggest things that for me um, when I'm feeling a little bit beat up is I really am intentional about adding another couple hours of sleep to my night. If I'm usually getting seven, I'm going to try and push that up to nine. Um, additionally, my protein, I'd push a little bit higher. Um, I mentioned earlier, my lower back felt a little funny. So I'm upping my protein from like 150 a day to 170 right now. Um, I was eating a little bit below maintenance, just working on a little bit of a mini cut. So for right now, I'm just going to push calories back up to my maintenance so that I can heal faster. So if you do get injured, um, best thing you can do is not really panic. Um, do what you can do and, you know, adjust your calories and protein as needed. I do prefer for people to try and push the calories a little closer to maintenance, even if you're dieting when you get injured. I think that's the best way to really boost recovery. Um, another strategy is really the sleep i can't tell you how many times how many people i work with how many friends i have that'll you know go balls to the wall in the gym and then scroll on the TikTok until four in the morning yeah 
No, I'm, I'm sure lots of people. Are, TikTok is particularly terrible. It's it's incredibly addictive. Um, I've deleted it multiple yeah. times because it's really good at keeping you uh, entertained. Yeah. It always knows what you want next. It's it's the algorithm is absolutely insane. Um, you mentioned so you mentioned about sleep and the importance of sleep. What would you say is the importance of stress management? Oh, I think it's essential. Um, obviously, everybody's got a different situation with home life, family, work, but stress management's really important. And I think that a lot of people will see self-care and stress management type posts and say, oh, I'm going to take a week off the gym for self-care. I'm going to eat um, just pizza for self-care, which again, sometimes that is what we need for a little bit of time. And I don't judge that. I think that, you know, I've done that as well. But also, I think you also have to understand that sometimes the best source of self-care is going to be to move a little bit even if you wouldn't do your regular workout maybe that's a little walk outside get a dog take the dog for a walk i think that's a great stress management source is hang out with some dogs um you know maybe have the pizza but have some protein first so that your body can sort of get back into its regular routine um but ultimately just trying to make sure that your self-care is actually caring for your body that's brilliant and that's great advice about even if you're going to have the pizza that's cool but make sure you still get your protein in. Yeah. And if it's one or two days, it's okay. But don't maybe don't eat pizza every day for two weeks and then feel bad and then lose track. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think that self-care is really important, but we have to be intentional about what our self-care is going to be. And I think that, you know, if we're really stressed out with, you know, it's the holidays, so people are getting stressed about their families. So if people are starting to stress about their family, way to sort of fix that isn't to, you know, knock back a bunch of alcoholic drinks and watch um, reality TV with families yelling at each other. Yeah. No, that's not the optimal strategy, I don't think. Um, signs of overtraining. How can individuals avoid it? And what are the signs? You know, one of the biggest signs that I find with overtraining is that my grip sucks. Um, my grip strength sucks. That is one of the first ways to detect if I've been doing a little bit too much is if, um, you know, I'm maybe I'm warning, warming up for deadlifts or something and suddenly I have a hard time gripping 225, then I'm realizing, you know what, it might be time for a little bit of a deload. Um, okay. Another sign of overtraining is that if you're getting sick and not really able to rebound from it, like a lot of head colds right in a row, that's a good sign of overtraining. Um, additionally, if, if you wear like a Fitbit or a health tracker, maybe your resting heart rate is a little higher than usual. Um, your sleep scores are significantly lower and um, heart rate variability, things like that, other me measurables that your Fitbit is going to track or your Apple Watch or whatever type of wearable you might have, that can be a sign that you're overtraining a little bit. And the best course of action there could be to pull back a little bit, take a little bit of the deload week. How often do you deload? Do you plan your deloads or do you do it when you feel like your body needs a little deload? I do not plan my deloads anymore. Um, when I was training a little bit more just for strength, I did plan them a little bit, which I actually find funny because I'm a lot stronger now and I don't plan my deloads anymore. Typically, I like to think of it as that my deloads are planned for me by my schedule. Um, being in college, finals week is going to be a planned for me deload. Um, so midterm week was also a deload week that was planned for me. Um, additionally, you know, so Christmas week's coming up. That's going to be a little bit of a deload time. Um, so if you look within your schedule, I think a lot of people are going to find that life's going to give you deloads. However, um, if you're really going a long stretch without one, like a lot of the times in the summer, there's a long stretch without them, um, you should 
listen to your body. And when you start to see some of those signs, as I mentioned, then is the time to do a deload or even maybe even a week break from the gym. That makes sense. And I think listening to your body is a very important um, aspect of training yeah. that a lot of people neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting about your grip strength. Um, do not use wraps or straps or anything for deadlifts or only on the heavier sets. I do use um, wraps and straps, so I'm a very big proponent of them. However, I do like to warm up without them because I think that, you know, a little grip strength never hurt anybody. Um, so if I'm warming up for 405, so what I'll do is, um, here's how I did it. So I warmed up with the bar, then 135, then 225, then 275. Then after 275, um, if I'm somewhere that allows chalk, I'll use a little bit of chalk for 315. Um, if I'm somewhere that does not allow chalk, then I will go ahead and put the straps on at that point. Um, and then after that, I'll hit 315. Then I'll throw the belt on for 365 and likely use the straps. Um, and then ultimately, I worked up to 405 then with both the belt and the straps. I like to sort of use that same kind of progression. I really do like to grab up until like grab it myself until like 275, 315. Um, and if I'm training for any types of competitions, obviously, I'm not able to use the straps in those. So at that point, I would only be using straps for back down sets of higher reps. And additionally, another thing that I will just mention about straps is I really like to use them for all my back work, Um, whether that's going to be rows, pull downs, anything like that. I'm a big fan of using the straps at that point because that makes sure that it's actually a back exercise and not a forearm or grip exercise. And if I do want supplemental grip work, I'm going to do my farmer's walk my carries and look like that. Absolutely. I've literally just started, I just bought myself on the Black Friday special, some new grips for uh, for back and yeah. some hooks and things because I, I've been feeling, and I've only just recently come across cuffed training and uh, using those for my back exercises. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's it's a whole nother ball game because I, I was fatiguing in my forearms for most rows and mm-hmm. most back exercise and so now I'm, I'm learning, which is cool. Um, what's the connection between muscle mass and overall health, and especially as people age, since you do ages 30 to 50 primarily? Yeah, so I think that muscle mass is incredibly important, and it's not something that people are thinking about enough. I think a lot of people will see just like an average skinny fat person and think that they're healthy, but that's not the case. I think that it's very important to build as much muscle as you can when you're young, because as you get older, you start to lose your muscle mass, which is detrimental to your bone mineral density, detrimental to your ability to not fall over as an older person, and is something that is going to really just make life a lot harder than it needs to be. More chance of injuring yourself, picking up a child, picking up um, something off the floor. And I think that having that amount of muscle mass is an insurance policy. Additionally, muscle mass is pretty much your best prevention of diabetes, or at least type 2 diabetes. Type 1 is a whole other story, but um, muscle cells are a lot more insulin sensitive than fat cells. So by training and having 10, 20 pounds more muscle than the average person, then you have a lot lower risk for diabetes because you have a lot more of those cells that are insulin sensitive and less chance of developing insulin resistance. Again, you can still um, out sugar your muscles, I guess. Um, but having that amount of muscle mass is just a great insurance policy to make sure you don't develop any of those metabolic conditions. Absolutely. And yeah, you make a good point about the insulin sensitivity in things and muscles and also how older people can literally hurt themselves just picking up a child or doing something that you wouldn't normally think about. We're lucky enough to still be young enough that those kind of things aren't problems for us yet. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, especially as we get older, will see pickup issues that 
should not be issues and there wouldn't be issues if they did resistance training into their older years, I guess. What are some common injuries associated with resistance training and how can they be prevented? Um, you know, a lot of common injuries that I see, uh, lower back pain, um, shoulder impingements, injuries, um, elbow tendonitis, a little bit of knee pain possibly, um, and sometimes hernias. So a lot of the ways to best prevent this is to really just, again, make sure that you're following a program. Um, even if the program isn't that specific, you can know, hey, this is what I did last week and appropriately add weight for the next week. Um, for example, if the program says, you know, I did 200 pounds last week, then this week you're going to maybe add the two and a halves and not just try and add another meal onto the bar. And I think that appropriate progressions are probably the best way to mitigate injuries and obviously making sure that your form is okay. Um, I think filming yourself is a great way to prevent injuries because it keeps you accountable to the camera and that way you're able to assess whether you're doing things safely or not. Um, and the combination of those two things, I think it goes a long way in preventing injuries. It's obviously not foolproof, um, but it will make sure that nothing serious happens. Like for me, I did tweak my low back a couple days ago, but I do know exactly why that is. That's because um, the weight that I actually wanted to use. So the gym plates at my gym are very wide. Um, so the weight that I was supposed to use did not actually fit on the barbell. Um, yeah, I was supposed to use 310, um, but it could not fit on the barbell. So I just went up to 315. In hindsight, I probably should have stuck with 305 and tried to add four or five reps to the set before having to make that jump when I realized that 310 would not fit. But, you know, at the same point, having that correct logging and progressions would pretty much prevent your injuries from happening in the first place. Absolutely. And I think a, a great point about filming yourself, um, it's not just for people trying to show off, it's also for your own, like to look at and watch your form and, and thing and critique yourself. So that's also another good a good point. How would you go about, have you had any, I'm sure you've, you've mentioned you just tweaked your back, but any uh, big injuries in your career that you had to overcome and how should athletes and lifters approach the rehabilitation process? Um, so I had a more major injury to my TFCC, um, which is a ligament in my wrist last year. I did that doing a hang clean. Um, so the way that I approached that was I actually stopped doing hang cleans after that because they didn't really align with my goals anymore. That was more of an athletic exercise. And I realized that there was lots of other ways I could develop power without doing any type of hang clean or Olympic movements. So I skipped those and eliminated those from my program. As for the rehabilitation of that, um, what I did was I reached out to some Twitter people. Um, they suggested that instead of doing absolutely nothing, um, I moved when possible because that would facilitate recovery. I was still hitting legs even though and my strong arm. So I'd be doing single arm dumbbell bench, single arm machine press, single arm lat pull downs, um, single arm of basically anything that I could do without pain um, and still hitting legs uh, using like the SSB safety squat bar, some machines, things like that to, again, just get blood flowing. Um, and then w when I could, I started doing heavy carries and farmer's walks in order to train that ligament in an isometric uh, position, which is what I'd suggest if people get hurt um, once they're cleared to do activity and movement such as, you know, by a doctor or a physician or a um, PT, then start, I guess, doing some isometrics that are very low impact, but um, you can feel yourself working a little bit. I think some of those isometrics are really great ways to get back to activity a little bit faster. Absolutely. And I think you make a great point about movement being critical. For a lot of doctors that I've been to and that I've seen online as well, 
uh, and and just the what our I guess the other our, our parents' generation was taught was that if you're injured, you need to stop everything. Rice was the big thing. Rest, ice, um, and, and the other compression, elevation, which has since been proven not the best idea. Um, and movement is a far better way about doing things. You mentioned about single arm training. I did a similar thing where I also had a wrist injury. I still train my legs, still train my right side or whichever side wasn't injured. Yeah. And that's a good a good point to make about still trying to move it or, or move your body at least, even if you can't move the injury. Um, and then also slowly getting back to with isometrics and maybe some, maybe not doing heavy things, but getting back into it slowly is also important. Yeah. And then just sort of using appropriate loads as you get stronger. Um, additionally, if you're, if you do get hurt, um, heat, not ice, <laughs> um, ice is pretty yep. much something that has been disproven. Um, so the heating pad is going to be a lot better investment than an ice pack. Uh, additionally, I follow Bowtide Cobra on here. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he's great for rehabilitation. I've heard lots of great things about him. So I did want to shout him out real quick about injuries. Um, just a lot of great info. If you scroll his page, you can find pretty much any common gym injury that you may have. Oh, that's awesome. I must definitely invite him onto the podcast. Um, that sounds interesting. Bowtide Cobra, you say? Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you. I'll look him up. Uh, how does the mental aspect of training play into achieving hypertrophy goals? I think you need to be very intentional to achieve hypertrophy goals. You can't just go into the gym lackluster with no plan, with no intention. Um, even if you do have a plan, there's still an element of self-responsibility when it comes to hypertrophy. You have to be very intentional with things like your setup, your execution, and you know everything obviously outside of the gym to really get those best results because there's going to be a point where you're enough years into your training journey that you can no longer easily build muscle so at that point you know you have to have the same mindset going into every set that you're going to really pay attention to your reps you're going to control your negatives you're going to lift as you know controlled yet forcefully as possible on your concentrics and those types of things are not things that you can really forget about when you're training um, for hypertrophy. So I think that mentally you have to be very focused in the gym. Exactly. And what just on that tempo that you mentioned, what is your tempo for concentric, eccentric, and isometric on a regular, on, on like not necessarily all the time, but in general? So in general, um, things are going to be a little different based on the exercise. Certain exercises I do prefer to get more of a squeeze such as my leg extensions, my leg curls, and other exercises don't have as much of an emphasis on that squeezing portion, like the chest press where I'm, machine chest press where I'm locked out. It's a little harder to emphasize that squeeze. So exercises that you can sort of have that squeeze or isometric contraction, I do like to make sure that I do that for a second um, when I'm there. Additionally, um, my biggest rule for tempo is that the negative can't be faster than the positive. So um, this is just a principle from, I guess, a strength and conditioning book I read, Triphasic Training. Um, I would prefer that when training for hypertrophy, you, you're not lowering faster than you're able to lift it. So if it's something that you can't really lift explosively, then you can't drop it on yourself either. And I find that that's a little easier for me than counting because sometimes I'll be counting my reps and I'll go, oh, one, two, three, negative. Wait, what rep was I on? And I can say I get a little, I have a little bit of a harder time. If I had um, somebody coming with me to the gym, sometimes I will go ahead with like the three second negative, one second pause, um, concentric as fast yet controlled as possible. But as a general rule, I want my negatives to be slower than my positives. 
Absolutely. I think it's important. I also used to just drop the, I used to think I'm here to lift. I'm not here to, to drop the lift. So I always used to just focus on the concentric and now I know better. So it's another, another thing that I've learned. Um, what are some strategies for staying motivated and disciplined throughout a vigorous training, training regimen? You know, I think motivation is really great to get you started, but I think that for most people, understanding that they're probably going to have low motivation at some point is really important to understanding that, you know, this is not something where every day I'm going to feel like going to the gym. But ultimately, the biggest tip that I have for people is that if you're scheduled to work out, you go to the gym and warm up. If you get there and you're like, you know what, I really don't feel like doing this today, then that's great. You've gotten a little movement in, you've gotten a little bit of a warm up, you've done your warm up sets, go home. But ultimately, once most people get there, they want to go work out. And for me, at least the days that I don't really want to work out end up being my best workouts. Yeah, that that does. It's funny how that happens sometimes. You know, I'd say for motivation and discipline, have a couple of like hard, fast rules for yourself, such as, you know, if I don't want to work out, I'm going to go to the gym and warm up anyway. And having keeping that as a hard, fast rule is a great way to stay disciplined. Um, another hard, fast rule that I have for myself is, you know, if I don't want to eat exactly what I've planned, I'm going to get my protein in and then do whatever I want. Um, so having a couple of those sort of fail-safe rules is just great for keeping discipline, motivation, and, you know, enjoyment high. That Those are some really good tips about having set plans so that even if you deviate slightly, you still get the basics right. Yeah. You still go to gym. And then, like you said, you often end up having the best workout or one of the best workouts every time, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned about your uh, ligament in injury in your wrist. Um, were there any other particularly challenging or inspiring experiences from your own training or coaching that listeners can learn from? Hmm. Um, you know, I'd say I've had a few clients that have gotten injured a little bit or tweaked something um, either through training or not through training um, varieties where... Um, again, the best thing that you can learn from that is just do what you can. So if something is tweaked, you, there, there might be something else you can do. Um, you might get to try a new exercise. So like, you know, let's say that you've maybe tweaked like one arm, you might get to try like a different preacher, single arm preacher curl variation, or you might get to try something else that you wouldn't otherwise get to try on your regular program. And I think that just trying to keep a positive mindset while still checking all the boxes is the best thing you can do, um, if you're injured or trying to get back to the gym while still, you know, still be intentional with things like protein, um, eating healthy food, food with lots of antioxidants. I also find to be really helpful if you're injured. So a little bit more fruit, a little bit more vegetables, um, and just making sure to get that good food in while you're hurt. No, some, some good points. What, uh, what foods in particular have high, um, do you like for high antioxidants? Um, for me, I like to implement things like beets, cherry juice, cherries, um, Grapes, basically any type of berry fruit has pretty good antioxidants in it. Pomegranate, if I can get my hands on it, um, as well as choosing some very like nutrient dense meats. Um, for example, like beef shank, very nutrient dense, um, can be a little bit more nutrient dense than just chicken breast. So opting for some of those more nutrient dense, um, nutrient filled foods are some of the best things that you can do when you're injured. Absolutely. And can you tell me about any turning points or aha moments um in your in becoming a coach you know that's a that's a great question i think that a big turning point that i had was that was when i realized that it's not going to be one size fits all and that people are ultimately going to do 
what they're going to do. You just have to find a way to work with the individual. Because, you know, I do have preferences and things that I'd prefer for my clients to do, but not everybody's going to do it. Some people don't want to walk. And, you know, at that point, if you're a coach, you can decide, okay, well, if you're not going to do what I ask, I can't guarantee results. Or you can go another direction and say, okay, so you're not going to walk, but can you get a stationary bike and put it in front of the TV? Can you um, do five push-ups every time you go to the bathroom? Is there something else we can do to, I guess, modify that? Um, Can you maybe park a little further away, even if you don't want to go for a walk? Um, And some of those things, I guess, finding some of those minor changes. And, you know, as much as I do try to be somebody that motivates people to change, it has to be change that's going to fit within their lifestyle. Because ultimately, if people are done working with me and graduate through my program, I want them to be healthy for the rest of their life rather than just for a few more months or a few more years. I think that's a great approach to have, especially as a coach, to do things that aren't cookie cutter or general and to actually have things specific for each unique individual is very important. Yeah. And then also, if you are a coach and you do have more of a niche, then you have to be okay with saying no to some people. Like for me, I definitely, I'm not a home workouts person. Um, I don't think that home workouts are as effective as um, gym workouts. So, well, sorry, home workouts without a gym, body weight workouts. So I would rather refer um, people who insist on body weight workouts to someone else who that is their specialty rather than do it myself. Are you familiar with the Gains Guru's Hypertrophy Research Blueprint? Have you seen yeah. it at all? Yes, I and have. What are your What are your thoughts and any comments, advice? I think this is fantastic. Um, I think that it's great to that we're compiling something that is science, evidence based, and is going to be available for free. And I think that for those people who are really go getters who are going to want to focus on hypertrophy, this is going to be a great resource for them. Um, but obviously, you know, with a big blueprint like this, there's going to be a level of work for people who are um, interested in this. So they are going to have to read some hard things. They're going to have to make sense of some things, maybe reach out to people on Twitter to help them make sense of things. So there is going to be some work. And I think that for those who are willing to put in that work, it's going to be a fantastic resource. That was a great summary of it. And thank you so much. I'm glad that you like it. And please, if you ever have anything you want to add to it, anything you think needs to be changed, please do reach out to me and I'll get that done. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually looking into um, I'm actually looking into a few studies about um, sort of rep tempo, rep quality, and things like that that I could add in um, to that. I also do wonder if there would be any way to add some things that are anecdotal as well to the blueprint because I find that you know, in a lab there are going to be certainties, but in people's life there's going to be lots of change. Like for example, the evidence shows that you know you can digest 30 grams of protein in an hour. And that's the most optimal for muscle growth. But, you know, as I mentioned, I work with a lot of people who have desk jobs. Maybe they can't eat every four hours. So what in so what in that case? So I guess I'm wondering if there's any way that there's any section that we could have for anecdotal evidence for when you can't do what's optimal. Absolutely. And I think uh, I'm definitely going to add something like that. I originally wanted to have kind of like a rating for how certain we were about specific facts. For example, if a meta-analysis or a meta-regression had been done, then maybe the rating would be 10. Like, okay, meta-regression, I don't know, sure, this is fact. Whereas if it's anecdotal, then it's maybe a two or three on the certainty scale. That's Mm -hmm. something that I wanted to add, but that would also require a lot more um, thinking. And it's also very, um, I guess, subjective. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's a bit more difficult, but I am very keen to add in a, a purely anecdotal section 
And I would definitely be very keen to get your thoughts and opinions on on that. Yeah, because I mean, I think that, you know, science is the foundation of everything. But I think that, you know, when you step outside the lab, there's just so many other factors that we can't account for. So I guess helping people figure out what the next best thing is so they don't have some of that decision fatigue when trying to go through this document. Absolutely. And it's like it's a huge document because there's so much uh, out there. But I'm really trying to make it as all inclusive as possible. Um, If you were traveling on a spaceship to Mars and wanted to maintain muscle size, what 10 exercises would you choose to be able to do? There can be any exercise or machine, but you have limited space. So I'd go with um, I'd go with RDLs, um, hack squats. I'd go with a low incline bench press, um, lat pull down, all grips, um, chest supported row, all grips, uh, shoulder press machine, all grips. Um, probably a bicep curl variation, um, a lateral raise variation. And then for the last couple exercises, I'd throw in, um, this is tough. This is tough. Maybe triceps or calves. Yeah, probably a dip variation. And then um, definitely some sort of calf raise sort of variation. Okay. No, brilliant. Thank you. So the closing thoughts, what advice or parting words of wisdom do you have for our listeners and who are going looking to embark on their own journey of muscle growth and health? I guess um, this is pretty generic, but find what works for you and have fun with it. I think that the person that has fun training, even if it's more optimal, less optimal, even if nutrition's perfect or not, is going to get a lot further than the person who does not love training. Um, So I guess you know, obviously be safe. That's important. Being safe in the gym, um, having a plan and things like that. But don't hesitate to plan things that you enjoy. Um, If you enjoy a free weight variation of something and you're more likely to look forward to your workouts because it includes a free weight exercise instead of a machine exercise or vice versa, go ahead and do that. And sort of, I guess, the furthest that you go is enjoying the process. Um, person who enjoys the process is going to go a lot further than the one that is just enjoying the destination. So I think that if this is something you're looking into, find creators that you enjoy watching, that are entertaining for you. Find accounts that you enjoy watching videos, um, reading tweets, reading articles from, and then sort of base your training style around that. Feel free to sort of evolve your thoughts over time and just try and, I guess, balance maximal enjoyment with the level of results that you want to get absolutely that's an amazing um summary of everything and i think enjoying the journey is super important and a lot of people overlook that and uh, also you mentioned being able to um kind of change your way of thinking and not having a closed mindset is also important in anyone's um training journey yeah absolutely so that wraps it up thank you so much for your time morgan i really really appreciate it and um all the best. Yeah, thank you for having me. Only a pleasure. Goodbye, Gains Gurus. Thank you for listening and see you on the next episode of TMGP.